I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, the Nasdaq falls after posting back-to-back days of 3% gains. If stocks can rally, a three-day win for the Nasdaq would match the longest of the year so far. Plus, AT&T shareholders feeling naked and afraid after Warner Media moves to Discovery, shares sinking after announcing plans of a spinoff. Then the Times joins Microsoft and Sony with a gaming acquisition, although nowhere in the release did it say you should tweet <laughs> your Wordle score every day, Dee. Yeah, no one asked. Uh, let's start with stocks. The Nasdaq coming off its worst month since March of 2020, but a huge rally in the last few days to close out January. Our Mike Santoli here now with a look at what's been bouncing. Mike, yesterday it seemed like everything in the growth complex is working today a little more selective and the Nasdaq underperforming? Yeah, today we're digesting really a huge two-day move, really a day's move plus the final hour and a half of Friday is kind of where you got most of that upside. As typical in these situations, when you have a very stressed market, the stuff that bounced the hardest was down the most. So the most violent rebounds did happen in some of those really kind of uh, woebegone areas of growth. Take a look at the social media uh, ETF, and it gives you a good map of where we've been uh, and who knows where we're going. But that just shows you the losses over the last year. And this bounce up here, I mean, you'd have to get uh, up to, you know, it's around 50 to get to uh, just its 20-day average, like a dead count bounces off and back up to just a four-week average like that. And then we're talking about 62 uh, before you really have anything like a 200-day average, which is still sloping. Now, my point is just that we're seeing reflex bounces. It's not really uh, any telling us much of anything about a return to leadership. The IPO ETF has a pretty similar shape. Uh, it actually is in a little bit better position. It's up a little more today. Uh, and this, remember, is recent IPOs over the last two years. So obviously, vertical decline, a little bit of a bounce from there, somewhat uh, less damaged, I, I would argue, is the small cap momentum stocks. XS, uh, XSMO uh, is an uh, index, an ETF of small cap momentum. It's kind of the racier version of the MTUM uh, index. And again, it's not as far off the early 2021 highs, but it just shows you that really all we did is uh, people just sort of lifted the pressure a little bit off of these stocks. Now, uh, you know, and, and market wide, yesterday and the day before, the best performing stocks were the bottom 20% of performers in the prior six months. That 20% slice of the market that did worst over the prior six months was up almost an average of 10% over two days. Uh, and that's like four times what the, uh, what the best performing six-month jobs is. So it's mean reversion for now. We'll see if it carries into anything else, guys. Yeah, those most beaten down names, it was kind of remarkable to see how much they were up over the last two days or so. Uh, at the same time, Mike, you saw those legacy dinosaur tech names. They were the underperformers yesterday. Do you think that means anything, that when you see the high growth complex bounce hard, the legacy names don't as well, and that can sort of switch. It's just this growth versus value idea. Does it mean that some of the same forces are in play? What do you look for to know if we have actually hit that bottom for the growth names? I think the market has to settle out a little bit and not just be this kind of day-to-day, wide-range pinball that we've had for a while. But the value versus growth dynamic, as you point out, has operated within sectors as well. 
Uh, so, you know, it's not that yields are dictating the entire story, but right now it's a matter of have these have the, has the growth, growthiest stuff gotten so sold down that it can just essentially track back up toward the middle of its range just because people are not leaning on it uh, quite as much anymore. Uh, and then more broadly speaking, you know, if people are wa- looking for the cheaper versions and the steadier versions uh, of, of whatever sector they're looking at, yeah, it'll be kind of the older uh, dinosaur tech, as you call it. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Mike Santoli. Question is, where do we find opportunity in the market? Our next guest is bullish on some growth names like Five9 and DoorDash, repositioning his portfolio within software. Joining us today, Calixto Global Investors founder and portfolio manager, Eduardo Costa. Eduardo, it's great to see you. Before we get to some individual names, it does sound like you think the, the trend could be higher from here, absent all these other concerns about the Fed and inflation. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me on. Look, I would, uh, I've, one of my teachers always said calling a bottom is a fool's game, and so I won't attempt it. I do agree that the skew is upward, but, uh, uh, but, but having lived through the dot-com bubble, I do have to say that the environment that we're exiting uh, very much has some characteristics that resemble that in terms of these vast swaths of capital really elevating multiples. And so the way that we've, the way that we've played this is, trying to be discerning between the names that we think are going to continue to grow and or accelerate in this environment and now have sold off and are trading at very compelling multiples and the names that still might be decelerating or disappointing. Right. All right. So walk us through, how do you get to those that are re-accelerating and the ones we mentioned in the intro? Why, why do those fit? So if, if you look at 5.9 as an example, the company was uh, was there was almost taken out by Zoom last year at over $200 a share and has done nothing but accelerate throughout the course of, uh, of the ensuing months. That deal fell through. We were vocal in, in opposing that. And these guys are incredibly well positioned to continue to take market share in a market that is only 25% penetrated today, which is uh, the cloud-based call center software space. So you look at a stock that peaked at 20 times revenue now trading at nine or 10 times forward revenue and accelerating, that feels really good to us in our portfolio. You take DoorDash on the other side, and this is a company who's about to start seeing, and there are some parallels uh, throughout e-commerce, they're about to start lapping some of their most difficult comparisons, and, we, we, and that's going to ease. And so at the same time, you, they've gone from in the last three years uh, 20% share to over 50% market share of food delivery. They're currently expanding into convenience stores and supermarkets. And so we see the opportunity for acceleration coming from those new uh, market opportunities that they're going after. So uh, with the stock having sold off from $240 down into the low 100s, this is a very compelling opportunity. We've been adding uh, to our exposure in both. Hmm. Yeah, Eduardo, uh, good morning. It's John Fort. So we, we've had some investors come on in this environment and say, hey, I don't want to buy anything that's not turning a profit. But that <laughs> that leaves out a lot of different things. So I'm wondering, and a lot of investors uh, might have a longer term view than that. So I wonder, what are the metrics that you use in this environment to gauge quality when we're talking about not only top line growth, but also operational discipline? That, that's a very important question, because at the end of the day, what we saw in the dot-com bubble is that the businesses that, and the stocks that really ended up taking another leg down were the ones that couldn't sustain their own operations and ultimately had to go back to the capital markets to raise capital, either debt or, or equity. 
And so you look at you look at five nine, and people talk about software uh, as being the rule of forty, which is the sum of your growth rate and your operating markets. The companies that are above forty are in the highest rung of quality. This is a company that's growing forty to fifty percent, and at the same time has twenty percent margin, so they're operating at a rule of sixty. Clearly self-sustaining and accelerate. DoorDash is a company that has a huge Trevor trove, excuse me, treasure trove of cash, and they've been uh, um, aggressive during the downturn, making a big acquisition in Europe over the course of the last six months. And so they have the financial wherewithal to be leaning in and investing aggressively in the growth opportunities ahead, while some of their peers in different geographies who don't have that same profitability metric in their core business,、mm-hmm. same balance sheet position, are not going to be able to be aggressive. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're looking even beyond sort of pure net income at adjusted EBITDA and making comparisons in that gig economy space. Eduardo, you also like the Chinese names. You said that、uh, you'd buy KWeb. That's the basket of Chinese internet names at this level. Are you confident that、uh, you know the regulatory pressure from Beijing is easing? That's a tricky question, Deirdre. But at the end of the day, the KWeb is down 60 percent plus from the February、uh, 2021 highs. We've seen significant capital flow out of China as investors flee the regulatory uncertainty and now the decelerating macro.、Um, you know where we've focused our attention is on the opportunities that we think there are companies that are benefiting from the regulatory environment, or at least it, it'll be neutral. Our biggest position there, which we're very excited about, is a company called ZTO Logistics. It's a twenty billion dollar company. They're the largest player in the、uh, in the delivery space there. And、uh, you know the government has been very focused on common prosperity and bridging that、uh, income inequality that has been widening in China. And so I, th- th- this is a market, the express delivery, that was very competitive in the ensuing 20 months. Mar- governments come in, they've regulated pricing, pricing is going up, and ZTO is the leader, is both taking market share and increasing their margins in this regulated pricing environment. So. We are seeing opportunities that are emerging, and it's oftentimes when investors are fleeing that the best opportunities are presenting themselves. Yeah, we get, we get a lot of、uh, time to talk about the big TMT names and Fang, but it's nice to see some of your work、uh, looking at other areas of opportunity too, Eduardo. Our, our thanks, Eduardo Costa. Thanks. Now, AT&T announcing how it's going to perform its long-awaited separation of Warner Media and merge it with Discovery. It will be through a spinoff. The specifics of that transaction are putting pressure on shares of AT&T. You can see it down about four and three quarters.、Uh, and Discovery is positive after falling at the open. Our Julia Borston has more of the details and the impact on shareholders. Julia. Well, John, that's right. AT&T said it will spin off Warner Media in a $43 billion transaction to merge those media properties with Discovery. It's a deal set to close in the second quarter. Now, we already knew that AT&T shareholders will own 71% of the new Warner Brothers Discovery company. Today, we've learned that that's happening by giving AT&T shareholders a proportionate number of shares in the new company: 24 Warner Media Discovery shares for every 100 AT&T shares. Now, rather than giving shareholders the Option to trade their AT&T shares for discounted stock in the new venture. AT&T is also cutting its dividend to eight billion dollars. That's at the low end of the eight to nine billion dollar range that was expected, and a dollar and ele- comes out to a dollar and eleven cents per share. 
Analyst Craig Moffitt telling us that this smaller dividend makes sense to allow overlevered AT&T to pay down its debt. He told us, quote, the dividend is a signal, though, and the signal they are sending is that their business is weaker than they were previously willing to concede. Moffitt saying that the dip this morning in Discovery, as well as in AT&T shares, though as we see Discovery shares are now up over 1%, it could be driven by concerns that AT&T's retail dividend-oriented investor base will sell their Discovery shares. We'll have to see how many of those AT&T shareholders hold on. And remember, it has been quite a roller coaster since AT&T paid $85 billion dollars for Time Warner back in 2018. And then guys, of course, this comes amid questions about the growth potential for streaming after Netflix guidance was short of expectations. And also there's been some new data out about churn, even as these streamers spend so much on new content. Yeah, Julia, there had been so much buzz that I've been hearing over the last couple of years about AT&T's dividend yield. So the idea that they're coming in the low end of that. I can understand how that might spook people. I guess maybe they've got to make a different kind of case now about uh, 5G adoption or I don't know, something. Yeah, I mean, look, AT&T is really focusing in on its 5G, on its mobility, and really trying to streamline what the company is about. And part of this deal was about paying down its debt. So I think the fact that, you know, that the dividend did come in at the lower end, I think that does explain what's going on with the stock today. But as Moffat said, probably shouldn't be unexpected. Julia, what do you think that looking at the Warner Media part of this, and you mentioned it at the end of that hit, you said that, you know, streaming has come under pressure a little bit, especially on the back of Netflix's result. What do we expect the new unit to look like and its prospects? Well, it'll be really interesting, Deirdre, to see how they decide to combine the Warner Media streaming assets, of course, that's HBO Max, with the Discovery streaming assets, Discovery Plus, and whether that combination can create an, a bundle, a new type of asset that can compete at scale with a Netflix, with a Disney Plus. So that's something that we, we are waiting for details on. Um, I think there's also this question of sort of how do they approach the theatrical model? I mean, more we, we haven't talked much about a- AMC, which saw a pop this morning on better than expected results. But uh, what's interesting is, you know, we had Warner Media decide to have all of its movies last year be simultaneously released on HBO Max and also in theaters. That's not happening this year. And the question is going forward, how do they decide to handle that exclusivity and really trying to drive people towards their new bundle of content while also getting that revenue from the theatrical experience? So a lot of questions still to be determined as David Zaslav figures out what this new company is going to look like. And just remember, the deal's closing in the second quarter. Julia, great roundup. A lot of names to cover, including, as we said, Netflix. Uh, We did cover the steep uh, fall post-earnings, but it is up 22% since Wednesday. It's gone from 351 to 441, 90 bucks in just about six sessions. Pretty unbelievable. Still to come this morning, got deals in the gaming space, and CNBC is celebrating black history. Some exclusive sound here from John's interview with Meta Vice President for Civil Rights. All that's still ahead. Tech Check's just getting started.
The major indexes now all in positive territory, with the Nasdaq slightly outperforming the Dow and S&P up about two-tenths of one percent. It was the relative underperformer just a few minutes ago. We're also going to get a gut check on Workday. BMO upgrading the stock to outperform with a $295 price target. That was not helping the share price much this morning, down about half a percent. The firm impressed by the cloud software company's ability to sustain revenue growth despite recent headwinds. They now expect 30 percent plus growth over the next five years. The stock has seen a 13 percent decline over the last three months, but the street remaining largely optimistic with more than 90% of analysts rating that stock a buy, John. Yeah, and D, turning now to gaming, Sony closing out a big month of deals, saying it wants to pay $3.6 billion for Destiny and Halo creator Bungie. This is the third major gaming industry move this month following Take-Two's acquisition of Farmville maker Zynga and, of course, Microsoft's proposed takeover of Activision Blizzard that is facing scrutiny. It's a monster deal. Or it reports the FTC is going to lead the antitrust review of that deal rather than the DOJ. Even viral hit Wordle has been snapped up. That was the news yesterday. Well, by the New York Times uh, for a reported low seven figures. Joining us now to break this all down, The Verge editor-in-chief, Neelai Patel. Neelai, good to see you. So, I mean, Activision Blizzard, is still in this whole other category. <laughs> like it's almost 20 times bigger even than this bungee buy. But I'm old enough to think marathon when I think bungee, which is really old. Um, th- this is still a- an interesting property, right, for Sony? Yeah, you know, I think Destiny is a huge game. It is a, a re- reasonable competitor to, to Fortnite and all the other mass social gaming experiences. You know, you brought up all these companies, Marathon was a Mac game. Bungie started as a Mac developer. <laughs> yeah. Halo was demoed at Macworld 99. Like, Apple has to make a play here. It's funny that they've missed it for so long. They missed it with Bungie itself, uh, which went to Microsoft uh, back in the early 2000s. So I think there's a lot more consolidation in the space. And fundamentally, what's driving it all is the battle for attention, the battle for time, especially as these games become commercial platforms unto themselves, where people are doing lots of transactions in the games. That becomes very lucrative over time. Wait, did you say Apple has to make a move here? It seems like... Apple's move was the App Store because they're getting paid by everybody who wants to be in mobile gaming. I don't know if arcade is quite the answer that they were looking for platform-wise to take that to another level. But, I mean, with, with, the, with the phones and tablets and all that stuff themselves, and, the, and uh, haven't they figured it out? I think they figured out that market. I think they're making a huge investment in AR and VR. We've heard and Verge has reported on multiple headsets in development that might be very expensive. You know what you can't do when you're playing a game? You can't check your phone. As long as the conversation's about Netflix and Disney Plus and streaming, yeah, Apple's still in your hand. You're, you might be shopping and buying in-app purchases while you're watching the streamers. You're playing a game. That phone's not in your hand, regardless of whether it's a console or AR glasses. So I, I think as Apple ramps up its ambitions in AR and VR, they are going to need a property that gets people gaming consistently the way that all of these other companies are finding the biggest properties they can and going mm-hmm. after them aggressively. Right. At the same time, we know that Apple doesn't make those kinds of huge acquisitions we've seen from some of the other players. And for the ones that might, like in Alphabet, there's that antitrust scrutiny. Neelay, where could a surprise come from outside of the big tech space? A Disney, someone else who needs the eyeballs as well and needs to get into gaming? Yeah, we've already seen Netflix has ambitions here that those ambitions are expressed 
somewhat cautiously, I would say. It's some games on Android. I think they need to make a bigger splash. They they do need one of these major properties that demands repeat attention. I think you could also see. I think Bob Iger recently gave an, an interview to Care Swisher. He said, "I don't know if that's for us, but there's new leadership there, and all of the hype is there." Also, all of the game studios that are independent want to sell. I think they are looking. The theory of the case here is that you might not be able to compete even at the scale of a Bungie or an Activision. You might not be able to compete with the platforms directly. So on an investment basis, the theory is bundling and self-preferencing. I think from an FTC or DOJ perspective, that theory is pretty dangerous, right? You can run a great game that people love and you still won't be able to compete. I think that's the tension here. Neely, uh, gaming isn't just gaming, of course, though, right? Everyone's talking about the metaverse, and gaming is sort of this perfect avenue to get there. So, you know, even a Walmart um, and some of the players in social e-commerce may be looking to gaming companies. It also raises the question of what what's left out there besides, you know, smaller developers and games like the one we saw from Sony. Do you think that there's still some big plays left, some big deals left in the space? It depends on what you mean by big deal, uh, you know. If not for Activision, I would have told you the Bungie deal is a big deal. So it, it, it kind of depends on where <laughs> well, to what about where even beyond, scale. like a Roblox or you know a Unity or one of the developers. Yeah, you know, I think those developers, Roblox is really interesting, right? Because they they already have a pretty scaled commercial operation inside of Roblox, so their path to growth is pretty set. I think I'm looking at Epic, which is going to IPO soon. If those companies can make it, I think there's a pretty good theory that you can have a large ecosystem. Those companies can't, and who knows what the the underlying platforms are going to do to compete now that they own their own properties. If those companies can't, I think there's going to be another flurry of gigantic deals on the horizon. What's most valuable here, Neelai, do you think? Is it the sort of mobile gaming mechanics and data that uh, can be acquired by getting, you know, King and some of the the mobile players? Or is it the sort of metaverse scale uh, talent of uh, being able to push a whole lot of pixels and and develop really deep stories for, say, a a 4K screen? Which I guess you're technically doing either way, but you know what I mean, the console level or the mobile level? Or is there still that difference? Uh, You know, I think that's a really challenging question. I know you're you're very focused on the chip industry, right? Like the server side of this is a big deal. Can you move the processing from the device to the cloud, stream these high-res games to all kinds of platforms, make them available everywhere in a way that right now you need either a pretty powerful phone, a pretty powerful PC, or a pretty powerful console. You can break that and actually move to cloud streaming. The dynamics of a change. That hasn't happened yet. I think in the moment, what is the most important thing is can you command attention? Right. This is why the New York Times bought Wordle. It commands attention at midnight every night. That is great lead gen to get you to subscribe to Times Games or the Times itself. Can you command attention? Can Netflix get more of your attention by doing games? Can Sony get more of your attention by running Destiny as a social product as well as a games product? And then can you transact in that product? Because right now, your attention is divided by multiple sources, but few of them apart from six-hour podcasts, maybe. Few of them can command your attention for more than 30 minutes or 50 minutes at a time. Well, Decoder has our attention, uh, as does Tech Check. Neil, I thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And he even brought it back to Wordle. 
Speaking of gaming, Electronic Arts reports results tonight along with Alphabet, AMD, PayPal. What do you expect from those companies this hour? Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Boza. Coming up, want to be Snoop Dogg's neighbor? You can in the metaverse, but it will cost you more than half a million dollars. We'll get more on a virtual land grab in just a moment. First, though, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Because I want to be Snoop Dogg's neighbor. Here's what's happening at this hour. Shares of UPS are soaring more than 14% to a new all-time high. The logistics giant posting record earnings as it focuses on growing high-margin deliveries over sheer volume. UPS also raising its dividend by 49% and giving full-year revenue guidance above estimates. 4.3 million Americans quit or changed jobs in December. That is a small drop from November's record. Job openings rose slightly to 10.9 million as labor shortages continue. Home Depot, meantime, expanding hiring for its busy spring season. The company wants to add more than 100,000 part and full-time positions. Home Depot typically hires around 80,000 workers each spring, so about 20,000 more this year. And a key measure of U.S. manufacturing activity fell less than expected in January. The ISM manufacturing index still hit a 14-month low. Prices paid by manufacturers continue to jump, suggesting that inflation will remain high. Great. John, I'll send it back to you. Thanks, Rahel. A little more than a year ago, Facebook got back the results of an independent civil rights audit it commissioned. The company faced tough criticism from civil rights groups on how it handled things like hate speech, voter suppression, and housing discrimination on its platform. The auditors recommended hiring an executive to specialize in civil rights and lead change in the company's products and practices. I spoke with Meta's vice president for civil rights, Roy Austin, who's now been in the job a year, now leading a team of eight. He talked about Meta's position on voting laws, what civil rights might mean in a stateless metaverse, and Facebook's outside oversight board, and how his role relates to it. Here he is on the oversight board. I think there are challenges. I think it's still early in its tenure. Um, I think you can go back for the lawyers out there, you know, Marbury versus Madison as the Supreme Court was establishing itself and what its power was going to be and what its reach was going to be. Um, I think it's, it's also just, there's a challenge to, and this is why I say every company needs a civil rights team and a person who is very high level, is because you know they're on the outside. Decisions are being made by Meta every single day. And unless you have people who are part of those decisions, it becomes a little harder. And then you also have, and you raised this in, in, a, in a great question early on, you know, the idea of, of, of making that change, ensuring the right thing is done from inception and not waiting till it's already there and then coming back in and saying, oh, you did it wrong. Because I got to tell you, it's really hard to make all those changes. And then the, the role of the civil rights team is, you know, when things cover go into civil rights spaces and areas, um, we, see the, we see the oversight boards um, recommendation. We help to make sure that it's being implemented. We see the company's response and we make sure that we think that the response is actually addressing the problem um, and addressing the what the oversight board is asking for. 
I want to note here, uh, today marks the first day of Black History Month, and over the next few weeks here on Tech Check, we're going to bring you conversations with changemakers and business leaders in the black tech community. We'll also tackle important issues with roots in black history that have importance to America more broadly, things like access to capital, opportunity in education, diversity in the C-suite, and much more. But, uh, Carl, you know, when I was speaking with Roy, we covered a lot, uh, including the difficulty of a stateless metaverse and what civil rights really mean and how Meta and Facebook are having uh, to shape that um, and, and try to shape it from the beginning because these things are a lot harder to fix once they're already out there. Uh, yeah, we talk a lot about um, this this idea, uh, John, in, in, in the terms of hiring and jobs and capital availability. But we're going to find out in the coming years, D, uh, just what role tech is able and willing to play in all this. And guys, we've seen in next generation technology like artificial intelligence, if you don't have an eye on these issues of diversity inclusion at the very beginning, uh, they can really fall to the wayside and have really important long-term consequences for how that technology is developed. So John, in your conversation with the metaverse, uh, does it avoid some of these past problems because they're looking at it at this early stage or do they inevitably arise at some point down the road because the people developing it, the makeup at these tech companies still unfortunately isn't that diverse? Well, I think you'd have these problems no matter how diverse uh, the, the people making the software, the people programming the software are because humanity is constantly changing, right? And diversity means a lot more than gender. It means a lot more than race in our conceptions of it now. It has to do with geography. It has to do with culture as well. So it's difficult work. And, uh, you know, I, I pressed him on this in a number of different fronts. Um, they got a lot of work to do, uh, and they're not always getting it right, uh, but it, it is interesting and important, I think, uh, to tackle these issues. And we will continue to celebrate Black History all February. For more, you can head over to CNBC.com. And here for now is CNBC contributor David Henderson with his personal story experiencing discrimination. My wife and I had our house appraised twice last year so we could sell it, and the second time, it appraised almost $50,000 higher than it did the first time. What changed? The first time we were home. The second time we made sure that we weren't. And we took down all the pictures of ourselves and our family. One of the most important things you can do to improve the financial future for the black community is recognize that discrimination like this occurs. Because you can't fix what you won't acknowledge. Major crypto funding deals underway. Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian's venture capital firm 776 raising half a billion dollars across two funds to invest primarily in crypto startups. Meanwhile, crypto exchange FTX now valued at $32 billion after a new $400 million raise from investors, including SoftBank. So, so lots of money in the private market, Carl. Uh, meantime, D, as money pours into crypto and Web3, the metaverse also seeing massive inflows of capital. Uh, Robert Frank has a look at how people are, in fact, investing in virtual real estate. Robert. Good morning, Carl. Or Facebook's meta announcement sparking a land grab in the metaverse. Sales of metaverse land topping $500 million last year. Now, nearly half of that came right after Facebook's October announcement. Sales in January is still holding pretty strong at over $86 million. 
startups, big brands, all pouring money into this space. The first Metaverse mortgage was actually just completed over the weekend at luxury real estate brokers Tal and Oren Alexander. They've sold billions of dollars of real real estate. They're now teaming up with Republic Realm for the Metaverse. They say younger investors especially see the value. If I were you, I'd want someone on my side that's going to advise me and make sure I buy something that's quality and that's going to appreciate. And we're able to do that for people that are just discovering um, real estate in the metaverse. Now, the most expensive sale so far in the metaverse is a collection of parcels in the sandbox that sold for $4.3 million. Token.com paid over $2 million for a plot in Decentraland's fashion district. They are leasing that space Back to big apparel and luxury brands. Now, guys, the least expensive parcel of land that you can buy right now in the sandbox is $11,000. So that $11,000 gets you about two-thirds of a virtual acre. Back to you. Yeah, Robert, it's fascinating. Here's where I'm confused, right? Like, in the real world, there are some spots in, in the Midwest, for example, or up north, where they're literally giving away actual real land for free, hoping that people will move there. Now, I hear that they're hoping that people will move to the metaverse. Not, certainly not everybody's in there yet. So A, why is it so expensive? And B, is there any sense of just how much land there is in the metaverse? How many different like, metaverse platforms actually count as far as, uh, you know, as valuable land, as far as the, the real estate folks are concerned? Yes. So there are four big platforms right now when it comes to land. There's Decentraland, Sandbox, CryptoVoxels, and Somnium. Those are the big four when it comes to real estate. Now, all together, there are about 270,000 parcels in those four blocks. Now, most of that is the Sandbox. The Sandbox is 62% of all the land and 75% of all transactions for virtual land right now are Sandbox. So Sandbox are where it's at. And to your point about land and what makes it valuable, it's really going to depend, and this is the future bet, on how many people come to each of these platforms and which of them become popular. That's Mm -hmm. just a big unknown right now. Right, essentially betting on different metaverses. Uh, Robert, thanks for that. And the discussion doesn't stop here. Tune into a Tech Check live stream after the show. I'll be sitting down with Terra Zero CEO Dan Reitzik, whose company finances metaverse projects. And he just started providing metaverse mortgages to clients. That's at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific. Go to our Twitter page to find the link. We're back in just two. Time now for a gut check on NXP, the chipmaker posting Q4 revenue of more than $3 billion, narrowly beating the street. For the year, though, revenue was a record $11 billion. That's up 28% year over year. The CEO also offering a look ahead to the next quarter, guiding to revenue of more than $3 billion again. Share started the day low, lower on those numbers, but they're now, as you can see, about flat, fractionally higher. NXP has nearly tripled since the March 2020 lows, Carl. And we got some big names after the bell tonight, of course, John. After the break, what to expect from Alphabet as Google's parent company gets set to report in just a few hours. Stay with us. Welcome back. Take a look at UPS. Shooting higher. You can see it up there better than 15%. 
earnings, revenue beat, upbeat outlook, and raising its dividend. It's crediting higher shipping rates and e-commerce demand for the strong quarter, with UPS and FedEx saying deliveries skyrocketed in Q4. Now attention turns to Amazon. Results are out Thursday. The street thinks the stock is the full package, several calling Amazon their top pick for 2022. No sells. But shares have underperformed significantly. It's down 10% in the last year, while Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet have all outperformed. That's a big moment coming Thursday. So are investors missing a huge Q4 given the strong holiday spending and what's likely strong growth in its cloud business? Or will the stock continue to face pressure? Just this morning, Bank of America cut its estimates for Q1. We will find out this week, Dee. Yeah, I think there's over 100 S&P 500 companies reporting this week. And you mentioned Alphabet, John, reporting after the bell today. Our next guest expects strength from Google's core search and cloud platform adoption, also bullish on YouTube's advertising numbers for the quarter. Joining us now, Baird Senior Research Analyst Colin Sebastian. Colin, good morning. I want to start with capital allocation. What are the chances you think that Google would issue a dividend, you know, with more than $160 billion of cash on hand. Don't they have enough room for a dividend plus investment in cloud, Waymo, other moonshots? They certainly do. Uh, They have room for dividends or an increase to share buybacks. This is a company that is very profitable, spits out a ton of cash. Uh, They have, to their credit, been increasing the, the level of share buybacks. There's certainly plenty of room to do more. Uh, a dividend certainly would be very well received by investors, um, personally not holding my breath. Yeah, it would be um, unusual. I, I often ask Ruth Port about plans of that when I talk to her after the earnings, but uh, doesn't they like to invest money back into the business. Um, and that hasn't really changed. I mean, when the founders took a step back, they continued to invest in these moonshots like Waymo, like their health sciences division, but they're still losing a ton of money. Um, Do you think that analysts, especially in a year when you can see interest rates rising and Wall Street is looking for more profitable, even though Google is very, very profitable, do you think that there's any chance that they scale back on those money losing um, moonshots or otherwise see more profitability from them? Well, I don't think as a general rule that they will pull back. I think they're evaluating the returns on some of those individual investments. And recently they've taken outside money to fund some of the growth for Waymo and and for for some of the life sciences efforts. Uh, That being said, they do break that out as part of their segment financials. So we uh, on the outside can evaluate the drag on profitability. Fortunately, the core search business is so profitable that they can easily digest most of those big investments. I was going to say, Colin, you know, some of us are old enough to remember when cost discipline was an issue uh, on every earnings report and uh, they, they were taken to task on the call. Um, is, is the overall market strong enough or are they more disciplined enough now to where there's no longer a concern? Well, you know, it may sound a little cliche now, but, but really core searches is still driving the vast majority of growth. And that segment is so profitable, even with big investments in core technologies like AI and machine learning, I think we all can see what the payoff has been from those investments they made in engineering and data centers and the like, you know, five years ago. I'm certainly old enough to remember that as well, John. So <laughs> I, I think that, you know, looking ahead, we're not going to see any change uh, to their investment philosophy. And it's to, to their credit, it's paid off to this date. So, Colin, what do you think is 
more likely to move the stock in this environment, YouTube results or cloud growth? I mean, we saw the cloud numbers out of Microsoft have an impact, certainly after hours when, uh, when they gave a guide that looked better than the quarter they just reported. But uh, is Alphabet at the point yet where the cloud matters to that extent, or is it still more YouTube around the edges? Well, it's a great question. Honestly, either one, outperformance in either segment, would remind investors that Google is not a one-trick pony with search, so, so it could be beneficial either way. But between those two, I think YouTube probably has the edge. I mean, there are questions uh, around Google now. What is their strategy for metaverse for some of these next generation virtual worlds? And with YouTube as a foundation, Google actually has a legitimate shot at being one of those big platforms in that Web3 environment. So YouTube's strength could help legitimize or justify some additional investments for Google in those areas and, and be a benefit to the stock. Colin, we'll see you after the bell. Much anticipated. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. The SPAC market continued to struggle in January. The CNBC post-SPAC index falling nearly 23% last month. Our Leslie Picker has a deeper look at the underperformance. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Carl. Yeah, that's right. The January volatility hit SPACs particularly hard. Performance, as you noted, suffered particularly for SPACs that had already completed their mergers down about 21% over the last month, 23% in January. Now, those returns do not bode well for the pipeline. 16 new SPAC S1s were filed in January. That's the lowest figure since May 2020, before this historic SPAC wave really took off, according to SPAC Insider. There were just 12 deal announcements near the monthly lows of the last year, which is problematic because there are still almost 600 SPACs in search of a target to pair with. Even the lucky few who are closing transactions are facing problems with investor redemptions. On average, 82% of shares were redeemed from SPACs as they finalized their deals. That's well above the average rate over the last year and near a record high on a monthly basis. But to some, just when it seems like things can't get worse, there's a buying opportunity. Recently, SunVest's Richard Mishal, the best performing hedge fund of 2021, said in an interview that he's actually been looking into buying some beaten down SPACs where there's where he believes the risk has been priced in at these levels. Guys. Hey, Leslie, as SPACs become better understood and more popular over the last few years and perhaps more scrutinized, you might think that the structure would change the way that the warrants and the promote work. Are we seeing that happen at all? I spoke to one company that was about to SPAC and they didn't change anything about it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's on a case-by-case basis. We are seeing, and it kind of depends on the, the sponsor there, there are certain class of sponsors that do kind of maintain that traditional promote, uh, obtaining 20% fees basically for managing the SPAC, finding the deal, and taking that um, home with them. On the other hand, newer entrants to the market may see that structure kind of shift a little bit. They may uh, have a bit more incentive in line with the shareholders and take less money home and take more home once that uh, SPAC actually performs on a more incentive basis. But 
by and large, we are still seeing, you know, your traditional SPAC structure. That's something that the SEC has been looking at, though. So I would expect that uh, to shift over time as well. Uh, fascinating turn here uh, the last uh, 12 months or so. Leslie, thank you. That's our Leslie Picker. Uh, interesting market action today. The, the indices is not, have not moved around a whole lot, but some underperformance in some of the defensive names like healthcare and staples and utilities. Uh, John, we mentioned the active earnings calendar after the bell tonight. Get some consumer guidance out of Starbucks, but clearly AMD is going to be one of the main names to watch. It will, and that's a company where its product leadership has been the story. Now, this stock is now, look, uh, a bit more than 30% off, uh, around 30% off of its 52-week high, but then 60% off the low. So where does it go from here, Carl? We will have to see. Yep. And we'll obviously watch Google as well, PayPal, EA, and some other names too. Uh, so a lot to get to. Let's get to the half with Emily. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.